History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 508th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, we have another Haunted Cemeteries. This is Haunted Cemeteries number 27. Woo! Yay! I love them. And it's dropping just in time because when this drops, the weekend following, we have our cemetery bingo. A little bit of synchronicity. Indeed. And thanks again to Suzanne Silk. We will never stop thanking her for creating Cemetery Bingo for us. If you want to participate, we've got the card up in the Spooktacular crew so you can download it and go out to your favorite cemetery and see if you can get Blackout Bingo. Whoever gets the most wins. It's a fun event every single year. Before we get into sharing these haunted cemeteries, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew to Connie. Hope we said that right. Isabel, Addie with a Y, Jennifer and Emily. Thank you so much for joining our Facebook group. And now this moment, Naughty. The moment in Oddity was suggested by Lori McDavid. Joseph Grimaldi Park is located near Regent's Canal by Angel London. St. James Anglican Chapel had stood here starting in the 18th century, but was eventually demolished in 1980. The grounds were turned into a park in the 19th century. Since a chapel had been here, there was, of course, a churchyard, and some burials remain. One burial that remains is for the namesake of the park, pantomime clown Joseph Grimaldi. He was buried here in 1837. He was born in 1778 to Italian parents and spent his life entertaining people starting at the age of two. Grimaldi was one of the most popular actors at the Drury Lane Theatre and Sadler's Wells. In 1806, Grimaldi created the classic clown we know today with painted on eyebrows, red lips and cheeks, and oversized clothes. He was declared the king of clowns and perfected the pantomime clown. Grimaldi retired in 1823 due to declining health and quickly fell into debt and began drinking heavily before he passed in 1837. It wouldn't be until 2010 that the clown would be memorialized in a very unique way. Artist Henry Crocatsis was assigned the task of creating a new memorial for Grimaldi and his employer, Charles Dibden, who ran the Sadler's Wells Theater. The memorial is two coffin-shaped graves made from bronze tiles that chime musical notes when people step on them. The installation was called An Invitation to Dance on the Grave. Creating a memorial with the specific intention of inviting people to dance upon a grave certainly is odd. I never come here but I see this same old woman wearing ears that bear her head and shoulders down, her eyes dry of tears. 
Each headstone has some tale for her. From each to each she goes. They tell her things she understands, about the folks she knows. Now living things are dumb and strange. She turns away her head. I think she's more at home out here, among the speaking dead. That was an excerpt from, In the Cemetery by David Morton, 1920. And now, This Month in History. month of October on the 24th in 1901, the first person to survive going over Niagara Falls in a barrel occurred. 63-year-old Annie Edson Taylor was a school teacher who lost her husband in the Civil War. When Annie came upon hard times, she decided to throw caution to the wind or rushing water. She began planning her Niagara Falls stunt in the hopes that it would earn her money and fame. That's pretty desperate. <laughs> Indeed it is. The 24th of October was Annie's birthday, and she deemed it the perfect date to take the perilous plunge. The feisty female told everyone she was 40 years old, whereas genealogical records show she was actually 63. Annie's design of her mode of transportation was excellent, with a leather harness mounted inside a custom-made wooden pickle barrel with the sides lined with cushions to protect her from much of the impact. She was towed by a boat into the rapids, which led to the falls. The rapids were reported to be what pummeled Annie the most. She arrived at the shore some 20 minutes after her journey began. Unfortunately, after the initial photo ops and interviews, the hype quickly wore off. Sadly, the stunt did not result in the monetary windfall that Annie Taylor was hoping for. Today, going over Niagara Falls is illegal regardless of the technique. Sit here on the park bench for just a moment and listen. Perhaps you hear a light breeze rattling the autumn leaves across one another. There is a bird or two singing. First a sparrow, and then a cardinal, and finally a crow calling from the distance. Water dripping from a nearby mausoleum tap-taps on the ground. Where you happen to be in the world while sitting in this cemetery determines the unique characteristics of the sounds you will hear. These first few sounds are common, but if you're in Alabama, the rustling of Spanish moss and the chirping of frogs might be heard. In Portugal, the sounds of a busy cityscape just outside the graveyard gates might interrupt the peace. The hissing and screeching of a corpse train pulling through the London Acropolis may travel through the ether of a bygone era. Or perhaps the echoing refrain of, The British are coming! 
can be heard in a Boston burying ground as though the warning were locked in time. And the strum of a guitar accompanied by the sweet melodic singing of a fellow spectacular crew member might be heard in a Tennessee cemetery. Join us for the history and haunts of cemeteries from these locales. So that was Tammy Burroughs. Wasn't that fabulous? Absolutely love it. Yeah, she performed this at, I don't know, it was some kind of a music gathering, it looks like. And I saw it on her Facebook page and I asked her, can I use that? That's amazing. And she wrote it when she was 16, right? Yeah, something like that. So very fabulous. Clearly, she loves Tennessee. You guys are going to love the cemetery we're going to share from Tennessee. Before we do that, though, we're going to talk about Brookwood Cemetery, which is also known as the London Necropolis. And this was suggested by our listener, Jimmy Tucker. And Jimmy had sent me this video that showed the original building that was part of what we're going to talk about here. It's such a cool building. We'll talk about it in a moment. But I had never heard of the London Necropolis, so I was very happy that he shared this. The population of dead in London during the Victorian era was increasing, and the city found itself in dire need of a new burial ground. And as you'll recall, we've talked about some of these burial grounds over in Europe, whether it was in France or whatever. The walls would be falling apart. They were in the middle of these cities, so decaying bodies, that stuff was seeping into the water system. Loverly. It was really a crisis. The London Necropolis Company was founded by an act of parliament in 1852 to help with this growing crisis. The company was tasked with creating a single large cemetery for all of London's future burials. As part of this task, the company sought ways to bring in the deceased from farther out areas, and they looked to the recently invented technology of the railroad to help. The London Necropolis Company, or LNC, bought a large tract of land in Brookwood, Surrey, and established the Brookwood Cemetery in 1854. They then formed the London Necropolis Railway to transport bodies and prepared for an anticipated 10,000 to 50,000 burials a year. Oh my goodness. They were planning big, and they were going to have their corpse trained for it. Go big or go home. Yeah. The goal was big, but never came to fruition as smaller cemeteries closer to London started opening. People were like, we don't want to go all the way out there. we are build a little cemetery here. So the LNC found itself on the verge of bankruptcy shortly after opening, but eventually found ways to keep itself solvent. By 1854, Brookwood was the largest cemetery in the world. That is no longer the case, but it is the largest cemetery in the United Kingdom. The cemetery has two main sections, each with its own railway station in the center. One section was marked nonconformist, and the other Anglican. They were pretty clear about how they felt about (laughs) where you stood on your religious beliefs. Yes. The trains had cars that were separated by class, and this included the cars carrying coffins. Mourners would get round-trip tickets, while the coffins would (laughs) while the coffins would get their one-way tickets. I mean, it makes sense. You don't want them coming back. No. (laughs) It just tickled me with that description. (laughs) After the trains arrived at their station, horse-drawn carriages would transport the coffins and mourners. Funerals were offered in three classes. Third-class funerals were for paupers, with the stipulation that no mass graves could be used. 
So the poor were given their own plot, but no right to erect a permanent memorial was given. A family could upgrade later, but this rarely happened. A second-class burial had more options for where a body could be buried, and the right to erect a permanent memorial was given. A first-class funeral had no restrictions, and the family could choose any gravesite anywhere in the cemetery. Permanent memorials were allowed and expected. These burials would cost around 250 pounds in today's money. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of graves here that have no headstones. The very first burials at Brookwood were Mr. and Mrs. Horace Stillborn twins. None of the first two dozen burials had permanent markers. Lieutenant General Sir Henry Goldfinch was the first person to have a memorial. The only Zoroastrian burial ground in Europe is here. A section was set aside for the ancient order of foresters and the Corps of Commissioners. Burials were relocated here from other cemeteries as well. Burials have continued from that time until today with approximately 235,000. Oh my goodness. A lot of bodies. Some of the notable burials are for Margaret, Duchess of Argyle, John Singer Sargent, and Edith Thompson, who was executed in Holloway Prison in 1923 at the age of 29 after she was convicted of killing her husband. Cremation became legal in Britain in 1884. The LNC sold the Cremation Society of Great Britain a plot of land in 1878, and they built Woking Crematorium, which was the first crematorium in Britain. The Brookwood Columbarium opened in 1910 and wasn't used much until the 1940s when cremation became more popular. Today, the cemetery features beautiful mausoleums, giant redwood trees, long and winding pathways, and scattered headstones that leave many open areas as 80% of the graves here are unmarked. Can you imagine? That is a ton of unmarked graves. Absolutely. I was told there'd be no math, but I think somebody's getting their calculator. (laughs) So that's 188,000 graves that are not marked. Good grief. And yes, I had to use a calculator. <laughs> While some people are probably yelling the number. I'm sure there. <laughs> there's some math whiz. Math was never my thing. I'm a right-brained person for sure. The cemetery is very diverse with people of all religions, stations in life, those who died in a cholera epidemic, and war dead, who have several special memorials. Parts of the tracks from the corpse train still exist, and perhaps those tracks still bring in a ghost train or two. People claim to hear strange sounds in the cemetery. A distant cry is sometimes heard, one of which we heard on a YouTube video about the cemetery. So there's this woman who's just walking through, talking about the history and pointing out different headstones and such, and all of a sudden you hear this cry in the distance. It was weird. I don't know. It could have been some kind of bird, I don't know, or animal or something. I'm not sure. Or it was a ghost. Or a cryptid. Or that. I didn't even think about <laughs> some that. Some kind of creature that we're not familiar with since we don't live there. Maybe it was Spring-Heeled Jack. Perhaps. Several people have claimed to hear the sobbing of a woman or the crying of a baby when no women or children are around. Green and white shapes have been reported as well as mists that appear over specific graves. Sometimes the mist weaves throughout the trees. Ghostly figures have been reported throughout the cemetery. There are also reports of pagan ceremonies being held. The main train station for the London Acropolis was built in 1900 on Lambeth Road near the Waterloo Station and was partially destroyed by a German bomb during World War II. Today, that building has been restored and converted into flats that are known as Westminster Bridge House. This is a gorgeous building with Dalton terracotta decoration on the facade. We have to wonder if renters have experienced any kind of paranormal activity there. 
After all, countless coffins stopped here on their way to burial at the necropolis. And next we have the Cemetery of Pleasures. I know. It's weird to call a cemetery pleasure. (laughs) You don't usually put those two together. (laughs) There is a reason why it has this name. The Cemetery of Pleasures is known as Prezetti Cemetery in Portugal and is one of the largest cemeteries in Lisbon. The cemetery is named after the former parish of Prezetti's, which is now Australia. So it used to be called Pleasures, the city or parish, however they put it. Gotcha. The burial ground was founded in 1833 after an outbreak of cholera and was originally named Cemeterio Occidental de Lisboa, or Western Cemetery of Lisbon. Much easier to say. It's not only beautiful and world famous, but very unique in that it is almost entirely made up of the thing we absolutely love about cemeteries, mausoleums. As a matter of fact, the largest mausoleum in all of Europe is here and belongs to the Dukes of Palmela. This mausoleum looks like a pyramid that is fronted by part of a classical Greek building with four ionic columns. The top of the pyramid is flat with the statue of a woman holding a cross, whom some claim is the angel of death, while others say she is one of the seven virtues. It was designed by Giuseppe Sanati, who was a Freemason and built between 1846 and 1849. The tomb also features a gate, and between that and the tomb is an area of black and white stones, forming 12 what they call lozenges. And for anybody who knows about the symbolism of Freemasonry, the black and white tile checkerboard kind of thing is one of their things. There are claims that the mausoleum holds 200 bodies. My goodness, that is large. Many notable people are buried here, including author Ramajo Ortegao, painters Calambano, Bardalo Pinheiro, and Roque Gamero. Pianist Alexandre Ray Colaco, composer Joao Domingos Bomtempo, prime ministers, and many of the Portuguese nobility. An imposing sculpted tomb is dedicated to the city's firefighters. A sculpture of a tree trunk marks the grave of a young man lost too young. Many of the burials are accompanied by QR codes, so people can find more information on who is buried in a tomb. That's so cool. I wish that more cemeteries would do that. Absolutely. I love that. A museum was opened on the grounds in 2001. This is thought to be one of the most haunted places in Portugal. People claim to feel an eerie energy and shadowy figures have been spotted winding between the mausoleums. I always love it when they say this is considered one of the most haunted places and then it has no stories. (laughs) That's all I could find on it. But I'm like, you know, I want to put it in here because it's a very unique cemetery. So definitely. But yeah, I'm like, okay, so if it's so haunted, where's the stories? And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. And now on to King's Chapel Burying Ground. King's Chapel was an Anglican church in Boston, Massachusetts that's now home to Unitarian Universalist Congregation. And right next to it is a churchyard, which dates back to 1630. The church houses the oldest pulpit to still be in active use. Wow. I've actually been to this location. I've been in that church. It's very cool. It's very cool on the outside, too. And this is one of those primo New England cemeteries with the death's heads, the thinner tombstones. I just loved wandering through it. The bell, which also is still in use. So you've got a pulpit that's still in use. You've got the bell that rings people to come to worship still in use. That was recast by Paul Revere. Oh, my word. I love it. The cemetery was Boston proper's first burying ground. 
The original owner of the land was Isaac Johnson, and he was the first burial here that was traditional to have the person who donates the land be the first burial, I guess. A really cool headstone here can be found at the front of the burying ground and was made for Joseph Tapping, and it features a skeleton and Father Time battling over the eventuality of death. Oh, wow. There are only around 500 headstones in here and 78 tombs. It's a pretty small cemetery. Most of the tombs are tabletop. Notable burials include Plymouth Pilgrim Mary Chilton. She is supposedly the first European woman to step ashore New England. She died in 1679. Apparently, she was so excited that she jumped out of the boat as they were coming to shore, didn't even wait for it to get to shore, (laughs) ran through the water and plopped herself right there on that huge Plymouth Rock. Oh, my goodness. Actually, the picture or drawing that I've seen depicting this shows Plymouth Rock more like what it really is. It's a pretty small rock. Chilton was present at the first Thanksgiving and married John Winslow, with whom she had 10 children. And most of them, I think, survived. I think they only lost one in infancy. Most of them did survive and they got married. The Bushes are her descendants, as is Howard Dean, who had been a presidential candidate. You know, he's the one that did the little donkey. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Many Puritan theologians are here, like John Oxenbridge, John Cotton, and John Davenport. Apparently, the Puritans like the name John. Clearly. <laughs> Founder of the Tudor Ice Company, Frederick Tudor, is buried here. He was known as Boston's Ice King. He sent ice as far as India and Hong Kong and lived to be 80, dying in 1864. There is a grave for Ralph Waldo Emerson's dad, William, as well. The first bookseller and publisher in the British colonies was Hezekiah Usher, and his final resting spot is here. This cemetery is the one that Nathaniel Hawthorne writes about in The Scarlet Letter. People compare the real grave of Elizabeth Payne to Hester Prince and claim that the engraved escutcheon, or shield, looks like it has the letter A in the middle of it, and that this inspired Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's a really cool headstone with the death's head at the top. It does kind of look like an A if you look at it in that way. It's not a real defined one, but you can kind of see the A in it, so it does make you wonder if he didn't see that grave and go, hmm, get the idea. Legend claims they did something here that was just asking to get spirits riled up. In 1810, it was decided that the burying ground would look better if the headstones were moved more towards the center and placed in straight rows. Oh, boy. Okay, it really doesn't matter what looks better in a cemetery. It's like, where are the bodies? The ghosts got confused as to where their spots were located, and they've been roaming the grounds ever since. Another issue is that the burying ground was here before the church. So those Puritan theologians were buried here before the church was built the church in Britain, that they fled. So they were trying to get away from the church, and now they're buried right next to it. Although now it's Unitarian Universalist, so they should be okay. Captain Kidd was arrested, tried, and hanged in Boston, and some people claim that his grave is in the back of King's Chapel and that his apparition has been seen near the grave. Electronic devices are said not to work well at night, although I had no problem snapping pictures during the day on my phone, and video footage will reveal that nothing was recorded. So people have a lot of issues with electronics in this cemetery. Next up, we have Pine Hill Cemetery in Auburn. Pine Hill was established in 1837 and is the oldest cemetery in Auburn, Alabama. The land set aside for burials was donated by Judge John J. Harper, who was the town of Auburn's founder. This was a mixed cemetery for both white settlers and the people they enslaved. The oldest marker dates back to 1838. There are around 1,500 burials that include Confederate soldiers, 
Confederate Brigadier General James Henry Lane, Congressman James Ferguson Dowdle, and past presidents of Auburn University. There are a couple of interesting stories behind graves. The most decorated veteran in the cemetery is a woman. This is Army Major Frances Dumas, who was a registered nurse. She served during World War II and was captured at Corregidor in 1942 and held as a POW for three years. And we actually covered Corregidor Island on episode 134. Nice. Quite the haunted location. She managed to survive the Bataan Death March in which she walked 65 miles with no food or water. That's like almost three full marathons. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, with no food or water, and it would I think it was really hot, too. She served for 15 more years after being released and retired to Auburn. She received the Bronze Star, Oak Leaf Cluster, and a Purple Heart. Bravo to her. And what's really cool is they actually have a walking tour for Pine Hill that you can do online if you want to. And I mean, they had dozens and dozens of stories and I just happened upon this and I'm like, wow, they should be highlighting her. That's amazing. Absolutely. Charles Stodgill Miles was only eight years old when he was buried here. He had an allergic reaction to a bee sting. His grave is crowned by an Italian marble statue that features a boy holding a lizard on a plate. That'd be perfect for our boys. <laughs> Absolutely. John William Drake really loved his wife, Volicia Volney Drake. Their elaborate gravestone features a large cloaked urn that is draped on top of a marble pedestal inscribed with two lengthy love poems he wrote for her. Virginia Howe has her second burial here. Yes, I said that correctly. She was only 15 when she married the much older newspaper editor, William Howe. She died the following year and he had her buried in the front yard of their home. Oh my. Guess he wanted to be close to her. <laughs> Goodness. Shortly thereafter, he married Virginia's older sister. And she insisted that Virginia be moved. And so here she is at Pine Hill. I was like, wow, that's kind of rough. You're like, dig my sister up and get her out of here. Were you jealous of her? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Maybe she just wanted a proper burial for her sister. <laughs> Maybe. I and mean, she's like, we don't really want her in the front yard. Can't walk out onto the front porch and have your morning coffee with her anymore. <laughs> Stop talking to her in the mornings. One of the tallest monuments here belongs to Jethro Walker. Jethro threatened to whip his son from his third wife, and the young lad was scared enough that it is thought that he grabbed a gun and put a bullet in Jethro's head while he was reading his Bible in the parlor of the house. Oh my goodness. Was the beating really going to be that bad? The case has remained unsolved, but it was interesting that the son left quickly for Cuba after his father's death. He just always wanted to go to Cuba, I'm sure. Two of his wives are buried next to him in what they call English fashion. And Kelly, apparently that means one is on top of the other. If that grave is not haunted, wow. I don't know what is, because I don't think the two wives would be like, oh, sure, put her on top of me. No problem. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Baptist minister William Billy Mitchell wanted to be buried in his bed when he died. In his bed? In his bed. Yes. So he, <laughs> okay. So he was buried above ground in a brick crypt in his feather bed with his shoes placed beneath him. Yeah, so it's All a right. big enough crypt to fit the bed in there, and <laughs> I guess he's still in it to this day. Now, I don't know why they put his shoes underneath him, I guess, in case he got up and needed to use the restroom in the middle. Of the oh, my. <laughs> Pine Hill Cemetery was placed on the Alabama Historic Register in 1978. Today, it is owned and maintained by the city of Auburn and is open for visitation from sunup to sundown. People have reported seeing inexplicable hovering lights over graves and an unsettling feeling. 
particularly as though being watched. And our final cemetery is Elmwood Cemetery in Memphis. A beautifully decorated arch announces that one is entering Elmwood Cemetery in Memphis, which is the final resting place of over 78,000 people and is the oldest active cemetery in Memphis. This is a rural Victorian cemetery with a creek that visitors use a bridge to cross to gain entry to the burial ground. So it's so cool. You have to go across the bridge to get in. And it's a big bridge. It's not a little one. On the right of the entrance is a Victorian chapel designed in the late Gothic revival style. And a Victorian carpenter Gothic cottage houses the cemetery's office. The grounds remind one of an English garden full of old trees, flower beds, and walkways. Those kinds of cemeteries are my favorite. (laughs) This is one of those that when they had the Victorian garden era, when it came to the way they were building cemeteries, this is one that was part of that era. It's been honored as a Tennessee Department of Forestry Level 3 Arboretum. There are three formal gardens named the McCallum Garden, the Miller Garden, and the Butterfly Garden, which I imagine has lots of those. Elmwood was founded on 40 acres in 1852 by 50 wealthy businessmen who each contributed $500. The acreage would be expanded by another 40 acres after the Civil War. The name was chosen by drawing it out of a hat. So all the men that invested came up with a name, they put it in a hat, and Elmwood is what they pulled out. Samuel Phillips was the first sextant, and the cottage was his home as he was on call 24 hours a day. The first burial was for Mrs. R.B. Berry, who was laid to rest on July 15, 1853. A streetcar line was built out to the cemetery to make it easier for people to visit. In 1903, the cottage was renovated with a walk-in vault being added as well as a social parlor. There are three mass graves here. One is for those who died during a yellow fever epidemic. The other is for Confederate soldiers and another for enslaved people who probably died during an epidemic. Each has its own monument. Veterans from every war, starting with the Revolutionary War and up through the Vietnam War, are buried here. There are many notable burials as well. Napoleon Hill has his final resting place here, and no, this isn't the guy who wrote Think and Grow Rich. Hill was a businessman who inherited great wealth from his father, but also made his own riches during the California Gold Rush. He moved back to Tennessee and settled in Memphis in 1857, where his contemporaries refer to him as the Merchant Prince of Memphis. He built his grand mansion in 1881 in the French Renaissance style, which was unfortunately raised in 1930 to make way for an office building. Uh, it's a very tall office building. Yeah, and it, it was a hate that. gorgeous mansion. It was so beautiful. Hill and his wife Mary often made the society pages in the newspaper for their lavish social events. He died in 1909 with the largest estate in Tennessee at the time. One of the things I like to do, Kelly, is follow our listeners over on Instagram. Generally, we will follow you back as long as you're posting stuff. If you don't have any posts, then I don't follow you back because there's nothing to see there. But one of our listeners is named Tara Taylor, and I was going through her stuff and a little bit of synchronicity. I already had this one set that we were going to do it on this haunted cemetery and then I noticed she had some cemetery pictures and it's here at Elmwood Cemetery and this one popped up and I went oh there's a grave here for Ma Rainey who was that this tombstone reads I'm Ma Rainey number two mother of Beale Street that really got my attention I'm 78 years old ain't never had enough of nothing and it's too damn late now (laughs) so you know she was a character and indeed she was Ma Rainey was Lily Mae Glover, who was born in September 1906 in Columbia, Tennessee, and became an American country blues singer. 
When she was just 13 years old, she ran away with a traveling medicine show because she wanted to sing the blues. But her preacher father forbade it because he thought of that as dirty music. Many people did at the time in Nashville, and she didn't want to bring disgrace on her family who had relocated there. Kelly, imagine a time in Nashville when singing the blues was thought to be disgraceful. (laughs) It's hard to imagine. I would bring my family dishonor if I sing the blues in Nashville, so I got to get out of town. And I love that she basically ran away with the circus so that she could do that. May traveled with a variety of shows. The Rabbit Foot Minstrels, the Bronze Mannequins, the Vamp and Baby Show, the Georgia Minstrels, Harlem and Havana, and Nina Benson's Medicine Show. She eventually married and settled in Memphis, where she performed so much she earned the nickname of Mother of Bill Street. She died in 1985 at the age of 76 and was given an elaborate send-off with a horse-drawn carriage carrying her casket to the funeral with a Memphis blues band leading the way. Nice and well-deserved. Yes. Henry A. Montgomery has a cool memorial featuring a statue of him giving a speech with a bale of cotton at his feet. Henry started and owned seven cotton compresses in Memphis. He gave many public speeches, and it was during his final one that he died of a heart attack right there on the podium. The man who created the Haddon's horn, David Park Haddon, is buried here. The Haddon horn was a bell-shaped device used to shake dice and ensure that no one could cheat. Haddon also served as mayor of Memphis for a time. There is an awful story behind the grave of Alice Mitchell. Alice was born in 1872, and she wasn't like the other girls around her. She liked to play sports like football and baseball, and she was more interested in catching the eye of a girl rather than a boy. So I know Alice very well. And she found one such girl who shared her passion, and that was Frida Ward. They met at the Higby School for Young Ladies, and not many of their classmates thought anything of their affection towards each other because girls carried on friendships like this all the time. As we know, we're allowed to be a little bit more affectionate with each other. You don't usually see guys holding hands and things like that, but girls do it all the time. Now, although Frida did care for Alice, her feelings weren't as strong, and she started seeing a couple of men. Alice decided to make a bold move, and she asked Frida to marry her, and the couple planned to run away in 1892 to St. Louis to elope. Alice was going to disguise herself as a man, and she was going to live as a man then after that, because she was like, that's the only way we're going to be able to get away with this. But the plan was crushed when Frida's older sister, Josephine, found love letters the girls had sent to each other and forbade Frida from seeing Alice. Alice fell into a deep depression. One day, she grabbed her father's straight razor and followed Frida, who was with her sister and another friend, down to the river, where they were going to board a steamboat. Alice whipped out the razor and slashed Frida across the face. Frida's sister started hitting Alice with an umbrella and ended up with her collarbone sliced. Then Alice jumped on the disoriented Frida and cut her throat, killing the woman she had loved. Alice was tried and found to be insane and sent to Western State Hospital in Bolivar, Tennessee, where she died in 1898. Some stories claim she died by drowning herself in the hospital's cistern. She was brought back to Elmwood and buried in the family plot. So a very tragic story all the way around. I believe some of her commentary was that basically if she couldn't have Frida, nobody else would. So it was kind of one of those things. Goodness, how horrific. Yeah. Elmwood Cemetery was added to the National Register of Historic Places on March 20th, 2002. The cemetery is open every day from 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and burials still continue to be performed. There are many stories of paranormal manifestations at Elmwood. Murray Hargrove was caretaker in 1982 when he experienced something he couldn't explain. 
It was around dusk and he was locking things up when he noticed a group of four men standing on the tallest hill in Elmwood, known as Lanau Circle. The men were cloaked in white and wearing tuxedos and top hats. The men didn't seem to notice him as he approached, and they just simply glided away and disappeared. The four men were believed to be Napoleon Hill, Archibald Wright, Henry Montgomery, and David Haddon, who were all friends in life that used to gather at a street corner to talk politics and business with each other. These meetings were actually commemorated in a painting that now hangs in the Woodruff Fontaine Mansion in the Victorian Village. Which we talked about just a couple months ago. Certainly did. People claim the four men continue to meet nearly every night at midnight in the cemetery at Lanau Circle, which is in the center of a square formed by their four graves. Clearly, they all really did like each other. They hung out all throughout their lives, and then they were buried basically near each other. The cottage is haunted by a spirit who likes to turn on and off the water. Some think this is Samuel Phillips, the first caretaker. A staff member was working late one evening when she heard a loud whistle right outside the door. She looked outside and saw no one. Disembodied footsteps are also heard in the cottage. And Alice Mitchell's spirit has been seen wandering the graveyard. Perhaps she's looking for Frida, who is buried here as well. The disembodied sound of moaning is heard. Sometimes a mist envelops Alice's headstone. We love cemeteries, regardless of whether spirits still walk about inside of them or not. They are full of stories, some tragic, some peaceful, but all are connected to the finality of death. Or is it final? Are these cemeteries haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, Tara says that she goes to Elmwood Cemetery all the time. I really want to check that place out. Sounds very, very cool. I do as well. Clearly, she's a taphophile. (laughs) Yes. And as you know, we love any cemetery any way they come. So just some more great places to check out. We hope you guys join us for Cemetery Bingo. We'd love to have you check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We got a comment over on the website from Shelly. And this was under the Peabody Whitehead Mansion that we did for episode 499. She said Dennis Gallagher was a Colorado politician, state senator for years, author of the infamous Gallagher Amendment trying to reform property taxes in Colorado. He served as Denver City County Auditor. He was also an instructor at Regis University while my son was there, 2000 to 2005, and was one of Rich's favorite teachers. Yes, he was a great storyteller. He came to Rich's graduation party where he and a visiting Jesuit from Dublin kept us all laughing with their stories. Tragically, Dennis's daughter, who was a friend of our son, died in her sleep over Christmas break of their freshman year from an undiagnosed seizure disorder, which I had no idea. Oh, how sad. She said, I haven't been to the Peabody Whitehead house. It's on the list. Peabody was not a good person, and for his role in the minor strike alone, he should be condemned. So she goes, so I had missed this episode. I'm glad I ran across it today. It's a really cool looking house, too, on the outside. That whole area down there is great. We want to thank you guys for joining us on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to welcome into the cemetery, Donna Schonkweiler. Hope we said that last name right. We're going to be burying you under a marble headstone. Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. We really appreciate it. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting. And join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump.
like the page and follow us. Columbarium opened in 1910 and wasn't used much until munched. Wasn't used munched. It wasn't used munched. <laughs> you got the munchies. Well, we haven't had breakfast yet, That's so maybe. <laughs> Part of the tracks from the corp trains. Corps. Core or corpse? It's supposed to be corpse. <laughs> well, you. you of course, the corpse. one time I'm supposed to say corpse, <laughs> you I say, say core. core. Pine Hill was established in 18... Oh my gosh. My my tongue is not working properly in my mouth today. There are many notable barriers. There are many notable barriers. Oh my God. Barriers, burials. What's the difference? 